Hey there, uh, you've probably already been told this, but the reason I'm not with you at First Baptist today is a couple of days ago, I met with another minister in town and then yesterday he notified me and another friend to tell us that he had tested positive for COVID. So I feel fine. I'm doing, I, I don't have any reason to think that I have the virus, but the rules say that I need to quarantine for seven days and get a, a, a negative COVID test. Believe it or not, I've never actually had a COVID test. So this will be my first time with the old brain tickle. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but that's why I'm not here today. Uh, I'm glad for, thanks for uh, the technology that enables me to be with you in this way. So we get to study the word of God together. So welcome to the Burger Home. I hope this goes well. What I'm really looking forward to, far more than the COVID test, is starting this series today. Loving Your Neighbor, IRL. Uh, I had to have my kids explain to me that IRL stands for In Real Life. So, hence the title of the sermon series. And it comes from one of the more famous things Jesus said. And we're going to start with the passage of Scripture today. It's found in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, by the way, lawyer in this context doesn't refer to an attorney like we think of it today, but a, an expert in the law, a scribe, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So right there, we see that Jesus was going through a period of time where the religious leaders of Israel, the two biggest factions within Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not necessarily biggest in terms of number, but in terms of power, they were testing Jesus. And the way they were doing it is oddly reminiscent of what happens today with our modern media. You may have noticed this, but the media has a practice today of asking questions of people that are far out of their uh, range of expertise. Like say they're interviewing a CEO or a movie star or uh, an athlete after a game. And they'll ask those people, these famous people, these random questions about topics of public interest like race relations or uh, or foreign policy or the results of the most recent election or the pandemic. And you're wondering, why do we care what these famous people have to say about this unrelated event? What's happening is the media is hoping that they will say something controversial. They'll say something that angers a certain portion of the population, either the political left or the political right or some other subgroup. Because if they say something controversial, that's what gets ratings. That's what gets people to tune in. That's what gets people to uh, dial up that website. And, and we can complain all we want about the media. It's because of us. We choose to watch that. We choose to uh, hit on, you know, click on those websites when they make us angry. We feed the outrage machine. So this is what we get. We get the media we deserve. In other words, that's a side note. If that drives you crazy about the way things work in today's world, it worked the same way 2000 years ago, except it wasn't reporters and writers asking the questions, it was religious scholars. Now the irony here is this man talking to Jesus 
is, a, is an expert in the law of Moses. The irony, of course, is that Jesus, as the eternal word of God, is the one who invented the law of Moses. So it's really funny when you think about it that this so-called expert is trying to trick Jesus into saying something to incriminate himself. But that's exactly what's happening. They're hoping Jesus is going to say something that will make either the Sadducees or the Pharisees or some other subgroup within Judaism angry. All they care about is that he says something that will make somebody else angry enough to take him out and stone him to death or banish him or in some other way discredit him. And so the question here is, which is the most important law? There were 613 commands in the Old Testament, what they knew as the law of the prophets. And so it was a very popular subject for the rabbis to debate for centuries, which one is most important, which one counts the most. And so this scholar, I'm sure, thought, well, no matter what Jesus answers, it's going to make somebody angry. Jesus answers in an ingenious way. This is something that he didn't have to be asked. He already knew. He said, it's not one commandment, it's two. And the first one, he quotes, is Deuteronomy 6.5. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Now, that's actually a part of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, the, the most, the key uh, passage in Judaism. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he quotes Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, on this, all the law and the prophets hang. In other words, even if you never pick up a Bible, even if you don't know anything about what the scriptures say, if you just follow these two commands, you'll end up obeying all of them. Let me illustrate how that works. So think about the Ten Commandments. What if you were a person who didn't know that the Ten Commandments existed, but you loved God? And because you love God, you would never worship anything other than Him. Well, then you'd obey the first commandment. And because you love God, you would never try to take some kind of carved image and make that represent God, because that would, that would be a blasphemous thing. That would, that would not really represent who God is. Well, that's commandment number two. And because you love him, you would never use his name in an irreverent way. You would never use his name in any way that wasn't completely appropriate. That's commandment number three. You would set aside a day of the week where you would worship him and focus on him. That's commandment number four. And if you loved your neighbor, if you put always consistently put your neighbor ahead of yourself, well, your closest neighbor is your mom and dad, the ones who gave you birth. So you would honor them at all times. That's commandment number five. You would never misuse sexual intercourse in a way that, that hurt others or that was anything less than a committed marital relationship between a man and a woman. And so that's commandment number six. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't take what belongs to other people because you love your neighbor too much to do that. That's commandment number seven. You wouldn't lie. You wouldn't deceive. You would be truthful and above board in all your relationships. And so you'd be fulfilling commandment number eight. You, would, you, would, uh, you wouldn't resent somebody else for having what you have. Uh, and that's commandment number 10. So you see, you wouldn't even know the Ten Commandments, but you'd end up fulfilling them because you loved your neighbor as yourself and because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, Christians, as a pastor, I know this, we tend to be pretty good at the first half of that equation. We go to church, we tithe, we pray, we avoid certain vices. We do what we think it takes to love the Lord. 
But when we hear that command to love your neighbor as yourself, we kind of have a tendency to throw up our hands and say, I don't even know how that's possible. Look at all these people who live around me. Look at the people I work with and the people I encounter in the grocery store and, 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 and at football games and wherever I go. How am I supposed to love all these people? And, and some of those people aren't even likable. Some of those people live lifestyles that I find reprehensible. Some of those people have been hurtful to me personally. How can I love people who I don't even like? So that's what this series is about is what does love your neighbor mean when we take it out of the lofty area of the abstract, and we try to put it into practice in real life. What I want us to do today as we begin this series is let's, let's establish right off the bat that this is going to be our standard. Let's choose to obey him. I'm hoping that by the time I'm finished here, by the time worship service is over, you will have committed to God and said, Lord, whatever it takes, I'm going to love everybody you place before me. I'm going to love the people you put in my orbit. I'm going to commit to obedience. So we're going to talk about what it really means to love your neighbor, what Jesus specifically meant by that term love, because he meant something different than you and I mean when we use that term love. And we're also going to talk about the two tendencies within the church, two tendencies within human uh, sinful nature that work themselves into religion and that cause us to miss loving our neighbors, that cause us to make faith in Christ into something that it was never supposed to be. So with that as a long introduction, what is love? What, is, what does Jesus mean when he talks about loving your neighbor? We think of love as an extreme version of the word like. Imagine you ask a, a young lady, do you like ice cream? And she'd be likely to say, no, I love ice cream. It's one of my favorite things in the world. But then if you asked her, do you love your boyfriend? She might say, well, I don't know. We've only been dating for about six weeks. I haven't really figured out how I feel about it. You see what she's doing there? She's She's using the word love as a, an extreme version of the emotion of affection, of like. So it's all about how I feel. That's how we use the word love. Jesus didn't use it that way. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't like us. It didn't mean that Jesus didn't have feelings towards us. It just meant that his love was not feeling. It was action. It was, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus didn't do that because of our likableness or lack thereof. He did it because he chose to love us. That's what love is. Uh, it's, and in fact, you can love someone who is totally unlikable because you choose to do an action that's loving. So here's how I define love. Here's, here's what we need for the purposes of this series and this message. Here's the definition of love. Love means putting yourself in the other person's shoes and asking, what would I want someone to do for me in this situation? And we see this in the story that Jesus used to illustrate loving your neighbor. It's the story of the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10. And my bet is that everybody listening to me right now has heard that story or is somewhat familiar with that story. Even many people who've never been to church, never read the Bible, know this story. It's probably his second most famous parable after the uh, parable of the prodigal son. But we've heard it so many times, it's sort of lost its impact. And there's certain cultural things in the story that we don't really get because we didn't live back then. So I want you to think about what if Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan today? How might he tell that? And there's a couple of different ways I can think. He might, he might say, imagine a, a young black man is walking downtown and busy street sees a man collapse uh, and is laying there on the ground. Maybe he's dead, maybe he's alive. Everybody's just passing him by. Nobody's doing anything to render aid. This young man runs up, 
rolls the guy over, and then and only then notices that he's got a swastika tattooed on his cheek. So he's obviously a white supremacist. This young man, in spite of that, in spite of knowing what this guy on the ground is, he renders aid, he does CPR, he revives this man. Did he do that because he liked him? No, he did that because he thought, if I were the one who was having a heart attack or some other incident right here, this is how I would want my neighbor to behave. This is what I'd want someone else to do for me. That's love. Here's another example, and this one might hit a little closer to home for some of you. Hopefully not if you work at First Baptist Church, but imagine your boss is a thoroughly loathsome human being who is cruel, who is profane, who is abusive, who takes joy in making other people miserable because it makes him feel powerful, okay? Now imagine that you come back from lunch one day and your boss is in his office with the doors closed, but you can see through the glass that he's got his head in his hands and his shoulders are quivering and he's weeping. And you ask your fellow workers, what's going on with the boss? And they say, oh, you haven't heard? His wife left him. She took the kids and split. She's gone. The, the house is empty. And uh, Aren't you glad? I mean, don't you think he deserves this? Isn't it good to see justice be done? And deep down inside, you feel that way too. But you don't act on that. Instead, you and your spouse that night, you, you take a you, you bake a big pan of King Ranch chicken and a chocolate pie and you take it over to his house and you sit with him and you just listen to him as he cries, as he, as he mourns and you're there for him. Is that because he deserves it? No. Is it because you like him? No, he's probably the person you like least on this earth. But if you were in his shoes, that's what you'd want someone to do for you. That's what love is. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, love your neighbor. Now, I'm happy to say, as a pastor, I, I've spent a lot of time around Christians, and I see Christians do things like this a lot. I can tell you stories, stories from our own church of Christians doing amazing things, incredibly sacrificial, courageous, uh, generous things for others over and over and over again. And yet, here's the tragedy. That's not what we're known for in our culture. If you went door to door and you talk to every unbeliever in Montgomery County and you ask them, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? I doubt very many, if any, would say, well, they're people who are better at loving others than I am. They're the people who love everybody. You can count on them to be loving no matter what. That's what they should think. That's what they should be seeing, but it's not. Why? Well, that's, that's what I want to spend the rest of my time on. There are a couple of tendencies that we see that go all the way back to the New Testament, all the way back to the days just after Jesus had ascended into heaven. In fact, before he had ascended into heaven. Tendencies in the human heart that cause us to warp and distort religion and make it into something else. Instead of about loving the Lord and loving your neighbor, we make it into something else. And I want to talk about these two tendencies. I want you to see, is this in me? Do I need to repent? So the first tendency is a desire to make the gospel more exclusive. And this goes back all the way to when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you know why he told that story? Because he had just said, love your neighbor as yourself. And a man in the crowd said, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Do you see what that guy was doing? He was saying, okay, Lord, I'm willing to love some people. I just don't want to love everybody. Can't we, can't we draw a line? Can't we say just my fellow Jews 
or just the people I like or just the people who live in a way that I approve of. Let's let's draw a line and say only these people are in the club. That's what it means to make the gospel more exclusive. And so Jesus tells this story of a man who would definitely be outside the club helping you helping you when you're injured. He's saying, if you were the one laying by the side of the road, would you want that other guy to have an exclusive attitude? Or would you want him to have the attitude that says, I'm going to love whoever God puts in my path? That's the whole point. We have this desire to make the gospel more exclusive, and we see it in the early church. Sad to say, this past fall when we were studying the life of Paul, we saw that the first time he and Barnabas went out on their missionary journey, they encountered this attitude. They're winning souls. They're planting churches all across the Mediterranean world. This is exciting stuff. The gospel is spreading like never before. Gentiles are coming into the family of God, and that's a problem for some of the people in Paul and Barnabas's church. Those Christians are upset. They say, wait a second, we don't want them in our family. We don't want them to join our club. These are people we don't even like. They don't speak Hebrew like us. They speak Greek. They wear Greek clothes and eat Greek food, including food that's been sacrificed to the pagan idols. They, they go to bathhouses and plays and games, things that places we'd never go. If they want to join our club, they need to become like us. Make sure the males get circumcised. Make sure they start speaking our language and dressing like us and acting like us. Because if they're going to become part of us, they need to be like us. They were making the gospel more exclusive. That's the whole reason the book of Galatians is in the Bible, because that was when Paul wrote to those Galatian churches and said, this is not the true gospel. If, if you're saying Jesus is not enough, you have to have Jesus plus you have to look like us, or you have to have Jesus plus you have to follow our rules, then it's not the gospel anymore. Now you may say, okay, that's very interesting Bible history, but what does it have to do with us? One of my favorite preachers is John Ortberg. And he has talked often about the church he grew up in, Little Baptist Church in Illinois. And he owes that church a lot. That's where he came to know Christ. But he also observed some things that were inconsistent. Every church is like this. Every church is full of sinners. What he observed was that some of the most revered people in the church, some of them were prideful. Some of them were uh, bitter and vindictive. If you crossed them, they would come get you. Um, some of them were totally lacking in joy. They were just angry, bitter people all the time. And yet no one ever said anything. No one ever said, you know, Brother John should not be a deacon because he doesn't have any joy and joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Nobody ever said that. But on the other hand, there were certain unwritten ground rules. If someone had seen Brother John out in the community cussing like a sailor or smoking a cigarette or drinking a beer, then the next Sunday they would have confronted him and said, John, you can't be a deacon. Deacons don't act like this. Those were the ground rules. Those were, as Ortberg calls them, the boundary markers. It was the way that church said, okay, these are the commands we're going to focus on. These are the ways we're going to know who's in the club and who's out, who's part of our family and who's not. And if you're honest, if you, if you really look honestly at the church you grew up in, whether it's First Baptist or, or like me, another church, every church, every church you, you might have grown up in, has its own set of ground rules, maybe some of the same ones that Ortberg's church had. But here's the really sad part. It's bad enough that we ignore some commands in Scripture and accentuate others. It's bad enough that we even bring in things that aren't even in the Bible and make them important to us. But what's even worse is, if you're honest, you were sort of raised in such a way that 
when you saw someone who was breaking one of those ground rules, your response wasn't, oh, this person needs Jesus. I need to go love them in the name of the Lord. No, your response was, oh, this person's bad. This person is not one of us. I need to avoid him. And this is what I'm talking about. This is why making the gospel more exclusive counteracts loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now, you may have your own ground rules, right? You may, deep down in your heart, you may say you love your neighbor, but when you hear someone express an opinion on a social issue or a political issue that doesn't agree with yours, you get angry with them. And that, that becomes one of your ground rules. I want to be around people who are like me. There are other ways ground rules can be in existence, like, uh, believe it or not, clothing can be a problem for some people. I, I was a youth minister part-time during my seminary days in a wonderful church out in the country near Fort Worth. Uh, believe it or not, the pastor's still there, who was there when I was uh, a youth minister. But I remember one day when one of the key leaders of the church said in front of everyone, you know, I guess it's okay for women to get up and pray in public as long as they're not wearing pants. And I remember thinking, where is that in the Bible? But that for him was a ground rule. That was something that was a non-negotiable. Women don't speak out loud in church if they're not wearing a dress, right? Um, a much more serious and grievous one. I was part of another church once that was an Anglo church in a Hispanic neighborhood. So we were able to reach maybe a third of the community. And a Spanish-speaking congregation wanted to merge with us. So another, instead of being a, a mission of our church, they wanted us to be two churches in one location. Um, they, would have, they would have a Spanish service and we would have an English service, which seemed to make a lot of sense. I'm not saying that was what God's will was, but it made sense. And I remember in the discussion, there were people in the church who were excited about it because they said, hey, this is going to enable us to reach people we're not currently able to reach. The other two thirds of our community that won't even darken our doors because we don't speak their language, now they'll be able to come here. But there were others, and this is why the church ultimately voted the idea down, who said, yeah, but doesn't that mean pretty soon there will be more of the Spanish speakers than English speakers? And then it's not my church anymore. And in fact, some said, you know, I think speaking English is important. I think, I think that that needs to be our standard. If you don't speak English, you don't join our church. I don't think they knew what they were saying. I agree that learning to speak the language of your country is, is an important thing and is helpful, but it shouldn't come before the gospel. And that's what ended up happening. Tragically, sadly, that ground rule, that, that unwritten boundary marker became something that kept us from loving our neighbor and kept our church from reaching more people. So what we need to see is the church is not meant to be a place where we just gather with people who are like us. Part of our problem is we live in a world that's constantly changing and that confuses and scares us. And we want church to be a place that's comforting, where we're around people who we like, whose lifestyles we approve of, people who are just like us. But that's not what church was meant to be. Church is not meant to be a fortress where we go and hide from the world and feel safe. Church is meant to be the opposite, in fact. Church is meant to be a lighthouse where we are sent out to rescue the lost and dying. So making the gospel more exclusive is a tendency that exists in you and me because of our sin nature that we need to repent of. That way we can truly love our neighbors. Now, the second, the second tendency we need to watch out for is a desire to use God 
instead of serving him. So Acts 8 has a story that has this perfectly illustrated. Um, in Acts 8, there's a man, we meet a character named Simon, who is a sorcerer. He is a magician. Uh, he works in the cities in the region of Samaria, and he's well known there. Everyone reveres him because he's got this amazing power. But then along comes Philip, one of the original Christian deacons, and he's preaching the gospel. And he preaches so eloquently and effectively, so authentically, and the Holy Spirit is with him. People are coming to know Christ, and they're changing their lives. And even Simon the sorcerer becomes a Christian and gets baptized. And then a few weeks later, the apostles send Simon Peter to go check things out in Samaria. And Simon Peter goes and he meets these new Samaritan believers and he lays hands on them and prays for them. And they start to manifest uh, evidence that the Holy Spirit is inside them. They're speaking in tongues and they're transformed from head to toe. And Simon the sorcerer sees this and he's really impressed. And he goes to Peter and he says, hey, I've got some money. I will be willing to pay whatever it costs to gain this ability that you have. And listen to Simon Peter's response in Acts 20, 21. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right with God. And I'm about to say a really harsh thing. And it is just my opinion, but it is a strongly held opinion. In my opinion, there are too many very popular preachers and ministries in American Christianity today that have more in common with Simon the sorcerer than they do with Simon Peter the apostle. I'm not making a, a decision or a judgment on the, the authentic, authenticity of their salvation. I'm saying the gospel they are preaching is more like the one Simon the sorcerer would have preached than the one Simon Peter the apostle preached. And that is a message that says, I want to teach you how to manipulate God. Now, they wouldn't say it that way. They would say it in this way. There are promises in Scripture that if you claim them before God, he has to give you what you want. There is a way you can have a certain kind of faith and pray a certain kind of prayer and donate to a certain ministry, i.e. mine, that will cause God to rain down blessing upon you. God is a blessing machine, and I will teach you how to manipulate that machine. And that is the version, the false version of Christianity that is becoming more and more popular and has been for the last couple of decades. Now, a lot of you listening to me right now would say, yeah, Jeff, I know. I don't buy into any of that stuff either. And let's admit it. People like me and probably you, that becomes a source of, of ungodly pride for us, too. I'm not one of these naive fools who falls for this prosperity gospel nonsense. Let me just bring this back home for us. Even if you don't listen to one of these prosperity preachers, even if you don't buy into that nonsense, you still have this tendency inside of you. So each of us have to ask ourselves the question, why do I go to church? Why do I pray? Why do I seek to obey the commands of Scripture? Why do I give of my tithes and offerings? Why do I, why do I follow Jesus? If it's because I want to live a life that is happy and blessed, and be protected from evil, if I want Jesus to bless my children and my family, and that's why I do these things, then that's a dangerous place to be. We're using God instead of serving Him. So a sure way to know this is, think back to the last time something bad happened in your life. Was your first response, your, your gut level emotion, hey God, how could you do this to me? 
after all the ways I've tried to serve you, how could you allow this to happen to me? Well, that's a sign that your faith is based on using God instead of serving him. You're putting conditions on it. You're, you're expecting some kind of a transaction, and that's not the way it should be. There's a movie back in the early 80s that actually won the Academy Award, uh, Award called Amadeus. Some of you may remember it. Most of you probably don't. Uh, it's been a long time. But the movie is actually about Mozart, but he's not the main character. The main character is a guy named Salieri, who was the court musician of the king of Austria, a real historical figure. We don't know if his depiction in this movie is accurate or not. In the movie, Salieri is this very gifted musician and very devout Christian who says to God, Lord, I want to glorify you above all else. I want to be the greatest musician in the world so that all the world can know how great you are. So all my songs will be about you. They'll be written to your glory. I will live a, a, a completely devout life. I will even be completely celibate. I, I will practice absolute chastity so that I can devote myself completely to you. And then he meets Mozart. And Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is the opposite of Salieri. He's profane, he's immature, he's not devout at all, um, he's immoral, and he's foolish. But he's also the most gifted musician that Salieri has ever seen. And because he's a musician, he can tell this guy's got a gift from God. And something happens to Salieri when he realizes this. He begins to turn against God. Instead of being devout, he becomes a, a heretic. He actually prays uh, this prayer. This is a quote from the movie. He prays, from now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you choose for yourself a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. And I don't know if anyone involved in writing or producing the movie had any kind of Christian faith, but it's a, it's a fascinating look at a man who went from devout to being against God. Why? Because his faith wasn't based on serving God. It was based on using God. He was willing to serve God with all his heart because he thought it would mean he would be the greatest musician in the world. But once he found out that someone who didn't serve God at all had greater gifts than he did, then his faith was gone because it was built on a foundation of manipulation instead of true faith, instead of true love. So let me just wrap all this up by saying our faith, our Christian faith is, is not meant to be a fortress. We need to repent of this desire to draw the lines more narrowly so that we can just be around other righteous people like us. We need to reject a Christianity that's about making deals with God to try to get from him what we want to make our dreams come true. Following Jesus begins and ends with loving your neighbor. That's what it's about. You can't be a follower of God and not do that. Stop trying to make it about something else. Think about Jesus. Jesus came into this world and he could have surrounded himself with nothing but righteous people, but no, he went to the sinners. He could have enriched himself and made himself more comfortable, but he didn't. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. That's the ultimate act of loving your neighbor. So as we launch into this series, on what it looks like to love your neighbor. Right now, my request to you, my challenge to you is to just pray to God and give him a blank check and say, Lord, I wanna follow your command. I wanna love my neighbor truly. So show me who to love and I will love them. Whatever it takes, whatever that looks like, whatever that means, let your Holy Spirit guide me. But I promise you, whoever you place before me, 
no matter what they might be like or what I think of them, I will choose to love them. As you give me the grace to do it, as you give me the ability to accomplish it, I will choose to love them. Will you choose to obey today?